Good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And hey, before we dive into our message this morning, uh, I just want to kind of acknowledge last weekend I had the wonderful opportunity to be off at winter camp with all of our middle school and high school students. Yeah. And um, even though many, many, many of them drilled me with snowballs <laughs> because somebody told them to, uh, even though they did that, which was really mean, and I took a couple to the head, and I'm still dealing with some, you know, sensitivity. Uh, <laughs> middle schoolers don't necessarily understand the boundary lines of, like, how close you should be when throwing full force at someone's face. Uh, something they're still figuring out. But no, it was a great time. I do have to say, uh, I was super encouraged at uh, who our kids are in this church. They, they really leaned in and just wanted to learn and grow and dig deep and relate with one another well. I was, I was blessed to be with them. I was impressed by them. And I just have to say that if you are a, a youth or if you know a youth and they're looking for a group to plug into, our middle school and high school groups are top, top notch. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, that was great to be with them. And with that, I want to dive into our message today. Like Ashley said, we're in week four of a series that we're doing on, on relationships and marriage called Ever After. Last week, Pastor Ashley talked about contentment and did a, a phenomenal job. Uh, she talked about learning to be content, choosing to be content in our singleness, in our marriedness, and just in, in our lives. And so that was, that was a wonderful message. The week before that... Pastor Paul and Pastor Bethany cracked open their marriage just a little bit for us and talked about the gospel and the power of the gospel to help us have the kind of marriage relationships that God wants us to have. And Paul and Bethany did something I really thought was fun. They, at the very beginning of their message, I don't know if you remember this, but they showed a picture of when they were younger. And it was the, like a, I think it was like a wedding day photo, actually. And it was that moment where we all got a chance to see, yeah, Bethany has always been more attractive than Paul. Like... <laughs> We wondered if that was just a new occurrence. Nope, always been the case. Um, actually, we're in the front row in the very first service, and Ashley leaned over to me as soon as that picture went up and said, can you say upgrade? And I was like, totally, totally. And because uh, Paul's my buddy, I know he'll agree with everything I'm saying today. Uh, but he inspired me, really. I figured if he can be that vulnerable, then I can be that vulnerable. And so I want to I share a picture with you today as well. There we are. It's pretty good. Yeah, oh, that's right. You recognize those youngsters, honey? Well, this is us. This is that's that moment in the, at the end of the wedding service when everything's happened, and finally the pastor says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it is now my pleasure to introduce to you for the very first time Mr. and Mrs. David and Amy Tishera. This is that moment. Like, we just had turned, people were clapping, and, and, that, and this is like literally the first steps of our married life together. And... and, and let me tell you something about these two kids. They're 23 and 24. I just turned 24. Uh, we passed our premarital classes with flying colors. We actually went to ours, Paul. Like, we cared. We, we knew we needed a little bit of help anyway, like a little more humility. But no, uh, we went to our premarital classes. Uh, we had dated for a long, we knew each other really well. We were just, we felt so confident that we were going to, this marriage thing was going to be a piece of cake. Um, but I'll tell you something about these two. They don't know what they're in for. <laughs> they don't know that the first couple of years of marriage are actually going to be pretty challenging. 
they don't know that shortly after their one-year anniversary, they will limp into a counseling center because so many of the things they thought were going to be easy and smooth were actually difficult and tough. You see, as it turns out, intimacy and connectedness and oneness and deep satisfaction in being together is often harder than we're led to believe. It can be tough and it can be really challenging. And so this morning, I want to talk about pursuing intimacy in our marriages and in our relationships. This is actually going to be a little two-part mini-series. In the middle of our series, we talk about pursuing intimacy. This week, we're going to talk about pursuing intimacy through uh, conflict and relationship. Next week, we're going to talk about pursuing intimacy through sex. And so uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive in. I want to give you just a few key ingredients, four key ingredients to help with that deep soul level intimacy and friendship that really is the purpose of marriage. If you were here in week one, we said, what's the goal of marriage? Why do you get married? You get married in order to become one, to have deep, intimate friendship. Today, we're going to talk about some ingredients to help that. We're going to look at eight verses in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians 4. We're looking at verses 25 through 32. This is some of Paul's most practical teaching in the New Testament. This is Paul saying, let me talk to you about relationships. Let me just tell you some some things straight away. He's talking to Jesus' followers in the city of Ephesus. And he's saying, this is what it looks like to be brothers and sisters in Christ. These are some things that should mark your relationships. He's talking about how do we have these kind of deep, intimate friendships that God wants us to have. And we're going to apply what Paul has to say here to the church and to our church relationships, to our closest friendships, but then also to our marriages. One of the things that, that Bethany said a couple weeks ago were, you know, in the Bible, if we were just to apply what the Bible tells us about how we treat our neighbor to how we treat our spouse, most of us would have a really great marriage. And so we're going to dive in today. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Here's point number one, and, and you can write this down if you want. One of the things I loved about the kids at camp, can I just, they were like fierce note takers. They all had notebooks and pens, and they were, because as Pastor Nick likes to say, note takers are world changers. And so I, I, I feel like they're really outdoing the rest of you guys. I mean, they're writing, down, they're writing down the stuff I say, which made me feel great, but also helped them. So if you're taking notes, no guilt or shame, but you know, if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Choose to cultivate honesty. Choose to cultivate honesty. Friends, I've chosen the language of this point carefully because this verse goes so much farther than simply calling us to not lie. Notice that Paul says in this passage, put off falsehood. And what, he, what he's doing is he's using this image that, that so many people in our world will actually clothe themselves in, in something that's not true, in some sort of an image, in some sort of a near to... to display themselves in a certain way, even if it's not true, and also to hide who they really are. And Paul is saying, have nothing to do with that garment. Take off falsehood. Those kind of, those, that has nothing to do with relationships in Christ. He's saying, 
Quit showing yourself to to each other in a false way. Quit covering up and hiding what is truly happening in your life. See, Paul's calling us to open up to one another here. He's saying, these are the relationships where it's safe to do so. Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message by saying, have no more pretense. Not in these relationships. No more pretense. In other words... You've got to put who you really are and what you really think and what you're truly going through and how you really feel on the table for the other person to see. That's honesty. This is about sitting with that friend or with your husband or wife and saying, this is where I'm scared. This is where I'm hurt. This is where I'm feeling insecure. This is something I'm struggling with. This is something I'm struggling with in our relationship. This is what I need from you in our marriage. This is what fills me up and helps me feel safe and protected and loved. This is what hurts me and alienates me from you. Friends, here is what I've learned. That kind of honesty and truthfulness and vulnerability will not grow in your relationship if you do not intentionally cultivate the right environment. That doesn't just happen. Those two kids, they thought that stuff would just happen. It doesn't. It only happens when you cultivate the soil, when you cultivate the kind of environment where honesty and vulnerability and transparency can grow. You see, some of you are in here and you are married and you have a spouse and they would like to be honest. They would like to put off falsehood. They would love to crack open their life and share with you about who they really are and what they think and what they're going through. But they can't. Because in your marriage, there's been too much critique and judgment and correction and even dismissing of their feelings for them to feel safe. You have not cultivated an environment of honesty, and so you're not getting honesty. See, everyone says, I want honesty. That's the right answer. Of course I want honesty. But are you willing to cultivate an environment where honesty can flourish? Some of you need to start the habit of just consistently finding time to be with that other person, that friend, that spouse, and asking some questions. How are you feeling? What's worrying you? How are you feeling about us? What do you need more from me? Is there anything you need to share with me or say to me that's hard, that you're holding back? And then just commit to listening and understanding and doing your best to understand. And when they share, when they share something hard, when they share something that stinks, don't get defensive or mad or passive-aggressive or pull back because, again, that cultivates an environment where honesty can't flourish. Maybe the question you really need to ask is this. Do you really want intimacy? No, do you really want intimacy? How, How badly do you want intimacy in this relationship? Do you want it enough to work at creating this kind of culture in your relationships? Do you want it enough to share and receive the hard things? Because everybody likes honesty when it's positive. Everybody likes it when it says, if I can be really honestly, you're amazing. Oh, thank you. I love honesty. 
It's when they say, you know, really honestly, I don't like the way you're talking about my mother these days. That's harder. Really honestly, I don't think you're spending your time well. Really honestly, I don't think you're the best dad you could be these days. And friends, I'm not talking about brutal honesty. This is not a license to go home and say, you know, Pastor Dave said today in his sermon, we should be honest in this relationship, and I'm really pumped about that because there are some things I wanted to say to you for a long time. Get a notepad, right? No. Here's a rule. Don't reference me or any of my messages in your fights. I don't want to be leveraged for your arguments. That's not why I'm here. Um, especially if you're my wife. Pastor Dave said today, <laughs> I was in church today, and the pastor, the very handsome pastor, by the way, no. Um, no, I'm talking about speaking the truth in love. This is what Paul says just a few verses prior. Speak the truth in love. We're talking about honesty that very carefully and thoughtfully flows out of a heart that wants what's best for the other person and for the relationship. But here's the point. The, the best relationships work to create places where honest, constructive feedback can be offered and received by one another. Are you working, not at just being honest, but at cultivating an environment in your relationships where honesty can grow? Here's a great, a great question for, for your friend or for your family member or your spouse this week. How honest are we with one another? Just grab coffee. Just sit down at the breakfast table and ask that question. How honest are we these days with each other? Do we go deep? Do we get real? Do we put off falsehood? Are we truthful and open about what's working and what's not? Have we cultivated, are we cultivating the kind of relationship where it's safe to talk about the difficult, vulnerable, challenging stuff? Or, or are there things that we're just avoiding Some of you need to recommit to this, not just to being honest, but again, to cultivating that environment in your marriage. Some of you have been putting on falsehood and lying and hiding for a long time. That's point one, choose to cultivate honesty. Here's point two, carry out arguments purposefully. Carry out arguments purposefully. In your anger, do not sin, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Paul's talking about cultivating intimacy in relationships here, and he dives right into anger. What's he talking about? He's talking about unresolved conflict and the immense damage it can do. He's talking about lingering unsettled issues in your relationship. Notice he doesn't say don't argue. Notice he never says don't get upset or annoyed or frustrated or angry with each other. He doesn't say that because that's not life. That's not real. In fact, here's what Paul knows to be true that some of you need to hear today. Conflict handled well can be one of the most powerful tools in your marriage. Because believe it or not, conflict and intimacy go hand in hand. Some of you, some of you in here, you're not fully honest because you know if you were honest, you'd have to do conflict. And so you choose surface level peacekeeping over conflict ridden intimacy. You don't want to be honest, you don't want conflict, but conflict brings intimacy. 
You know, in the Greek, there are a few, few different words for anger. There are three, actually. One of them is the word that means to just fly off the handle, or just to erupt in rage, to just be fuming mad. The other one is to do that same thing, but just to do it internally, to just boil inside, to just seethe in your heart and in your soul. Paul uses neither of those words here. Instead, he uses a word uh, for anger, the word that means how you feel when something isn't right, how you feel when something's wrong and it needs to be corrected. It's a tempered anger. It's an appropriate response to something being wrong. You know, there's a fascinating study that some of you may have seen by a guy named Dr. John Gottman, who's kind of a marriage guru specialist these days. Gottman studied couples for 16 years, and here's what he says. He says, how a couple fights is the number one factor in determining marital satisfaction and longevity. Think about all the factors that go into marriage. Think about all the things you can put in that slot. The number one factor, according to Gottman, in determining marital satisfaction and longevity is how you fight. Again, not if you fight, but how you fight. Unhealthy couples, Gottman says, argue for victory. Healthy couples argue for resolution. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You see, Paul was way ahead of his time. He's saying, when you get angry, when there's reason for conflict, engage in order to solve. Don't engage to win. Don't engage to vent. Don't engage to tear down or just prove your point. Engage in a way that leads to timely resolution. Timely resolution. Gottman's number one tip for arguing, by the way, his top tip, first on the list, soften your start. He says, don't come out guns blazing and accusatory and demeaning. Come in soft and gentle in a way that invites the other person into the conversation. Again, I think Gottman's stealing his material from the scriptures because listen to Proverbs 15. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, Gottman says, if you fight well, your marriage will go well. Right? And then he says, here's one of the keys to fighting well. Start well. Don't come in with a harsh word. Why? Because it'll just stir up anger. All of us can think of many examples of when we lived into this well and when we lived into this poorly. How many of you go into conflict and you're just firing and the other person is just automatically on their heels and defensive? You can set the argument and the resolution time back hours, days, even weeks by just a poor start. Here's another verse. Here's some more wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And for some of you, this really could be an entire sermon. For some of you, this one verse, you should just take a picture of it with your phone or write down the reference and look it up later, print it off, stick it on your mirror at home, and that's all you needed today. You could leave after this. Don't leave, but you could. <laughs> Proverbs 18.2. Fools find no pleasure in understanding but delight in airing their own opinions. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. How many in here think they might be married to a fool? No, I'm just kidding. Don't say it. Don't <laughs> Friends, this is what Gottman says is the number one quality of couples who do conflict well. Again, if you do conflict well, chances of your marriage being good go way up. And here's the number one quality of couples who do conflict well. They truly 
listen to one another. They try to understand the other person's perspective. They try to understand how they're thinking and how they're feeling. And and it doesn't always work, and it's not always easy, but there is a sincere attempt to listen and understand in the midst of conflict. You see, some of you, you've stopped trying to listen and understand a long time ago. You've determined that you're right and she's wrong and you're going to take your opinion to the grave. And what Paul says here is that you're playing with fire. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That was actually a common proverb of the day and Paul borrows it here. And he's saying, unresolved conflict in your relationship will absolutely obliterate your intimacy. It'll absolutely, it's like poison to intimacy. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. That word for devil is the word diabolos, and its technical translation is the accuser or the slanderer. In other words, unresolved conflict with your spouse, with your friend, gives space for them being consistently and constantly slandered in your mind and heart. When there's unresolved conflict in here, now all of a sudden I'm hearing things and I'm, I'm receiving things and I'm thinking things and I'm accepting things about that person that aren't true because they're just being slandered and accused in me. Paul says this will obviously kill any chance of intimacy between you. And so do not let conflict sit unresolved. Don't hold on to things for days and weeks and months and years. Don't think just by tucking it in the back of the drawer that it'll go away and it won't bother you or fester you or destroy you. It will. And if you need help, if there's an issue you you cannot get over on your own or together, then get help. Make an appointment. Go to the office. Ask that third party to sit with you. But do not sit with unresolved conflict in your relationships. Carry out arguments purposefully with the goal of understanding and resolution. Here's point three. Continue to give selflessly. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Some of you are stealing in your marriage. Some of you are takers, not givers, in your most intimate friendships. Because all of you are connected to people, a friend or a spouse, who has some needs. Some emotional needs, some relational needs. And certainly God is the one who meets our needs. But sometimes God says, I want to meet that other person's needs through you. I created them to to be interdependent with you, and so I want to meet their needs through you. But if you're a stealer, if you're a taker, if you're not a need meter, then they're going to be hurting. They're going to be empty. They're going to be left wanting. Sometimes God says, I want them to feel loved and affirmed and encouraged and built up through you. And this goes back to point one, the whole honesty thing. Are you honest with your spouse about what you need? Are you honest? Do you create a, a culture where honesty can, can, can bubble up and you can find out from them what they truly need? Do you have this kind of honesty in your friendships? I love how in the middle of this verse, Paul says, 
You must work. He says, don't steal. You, you, you need to work. Don't just take for yourself. You need to work, right? In other words, it's going to take some effort. It's not always going to be easy. Relational intimacy takes work. It's not always natural for you. It takes effort and energy and intentionality. Are you willing to work at meeting your friends or your spouse's relational needs? I think every married couple in the room needs to keep in front of them, right in the front of their relationship, uh, their partner's love language or love languages. How does your spouse or your friend need to be loved? Where do they have needs that they're looking for in the relationship? Is it quality time? Is, is that how they receive love? Is by spending quality time with you? If so, do you know what quality time looks like for that person? Do you intentionally put that on your calendar? Do you make it a priority? Is it on your schedule because it matters that much? Is it touch? Do they need physical touch from you? Do they need, do they need you to just walk up and grab their arm or... Snuggle up next to them on the couch or sit close or take their hand? Is it acts of service? If so, do you know what specific ta- tasks really affirm and speak love to your spouse? If you don't, have you asked? Is there a culture where you could just say, hey, how, how, could, you feel, how, how could you feel more loved? Does, does this work? Does that work? What works? Maybe it's gifts. Maybe a thoughtful gift is just what your spouse or friend needs to be encouraged or built up to know that you care. Or maybe words. In verse 29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You see, some of you have a friend. Some of you are married to someone who needs words from you to feel loved. Figure out what those words are. Speak them, type them, text them, write them down. Again, here's the point. There are a lot of ways to steal in a relationship. To take and not to give. But Paul here says, work at building others up. How? According to their needs. How should I work to build up my wife? How should I work to build up my husband or my friend? According to their needs. But what if what they need, I'm not that good at? Well, then you got to work at it. But, you know, my family wasn't all that touchy growing up, and it's really hard for me. Well, you, you got some work to do. Because it's not about your needs, it's about their needs. You're, it's all about becoming an expert on the needs of the other. Again, here's the point. There's a lot of ways to steal in a relationship. But intimacy in relationship happens when you get more focused on their needs than your deficiencies. More focused on their needs than your needs. Continue to give selflessly. And and here's the last point. Commit to forgive compassionately. Gottman says the best couples don't do conflict perfectly. The very best couples that he studies, none of them do conflict perfectly because no one does conflict perfectly. Everyone blows it in this moment. Everyone will mess up at some point. But the best couples apologize and talk about it and forgive one another when things don't go well. He says the very best couples repair well. 
They're able to heal. They're able to come back together and repair. And listen to how Paul says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of judgment. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. He says, commit to forgive compassionately. You know, here's how this goes. Every single person, I'll talk to you married people, you can apply this same principle to, to your, to your uh, friendships and other relationships as well. But, but every single person who moves into a marriage moves into a marriage with a bag full of expectations. Sometimes you know what those expectations are. Sometimes you're aware of them. Most of the time, you don't even know that you're expecting something from this person that you're, that you're marrying. There's money expectations. How much money will we make? How should we spend our money? How should we not spend our money? And my wife grew up in a family where they bought new cars. My dad never, ever, ever bought a new car. And so how we're spending our money on cars, that was something we had to work out because we had different expectations. There's time and schedule expectations. How busy should we be? How social should we be? How should we spend our weekends? There's faith expectations. What does church look like? Where do we go to church? What kind of church? What does faith look like in the home? Who's in charge of what? There's sexual expectations. We'll talk about these next week. Don't miss it. There's family expectations, especially over the holidays with extended family. Where do we go? And for how long? And whose traditions? And my mom's bunt cake or your mom's? And let's, those are fighting words. <laughs> Don't mess with my mom's bunt cake. You know, there's parenting expectations. You know, should we have kids? Can we have kids? How many kids? Why do we have these stinking kids? How should these little <laughs> rascals be parented, you know? And some of these things can seem kind of surface, but they get real personal. Even when they don't seem to matter that much, when they get inside your marriage, they get real personal real fast. My father-in-law, he was a farm kid. He was raised in northern Iowa. And if you're not familiar with farm kids, I can tell you something about them. They can fix anything. They're just intuitively handy because they grew up in a place where you didn't call a fix-it guy. You were the fix-it guy. And so you, if you... If it broke, you fixed it. And if you didn't know how to fix it, you figured out how to fix it. And so my father-in-law, he's, he's very handy. He's on top of it. He can repair almost anything, and he does it well, and he's got good taste. If something breaks, you fix it. You fix it right away, and you fix it top-notch. And so my wife comes into our marriage with this expectation that that's just what husbands do. <laughs> they fix stuff. I mean, if you were a real man, you can fix these things, right? And then she married me. And I got other gifts, guys. Like, you know, I'm good at sermons and stuff, but, but I'm not the most handy dude. At, at one point in our marriage, when we, when we had this house early in our marriage, there was a hole in the wall in the kitchen. It was kind of in a random place because at one point there was like a phone jack there and the phone was hanging on the wall, but then it kind of ceased to exist, but there's still this gaping hole in the wall. And so Amy's like, well, it'd be nice not to have a hole in the middle of the kitchen wall could we fix the hole and so you know I was like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be this husband I'm gonna be this guy and I thought I'm gonna tackle this project fix this hole for my wife you know what I ended up doing I have my picture there <laughs> ask Amy for years sometimes like years and years maybe like a decade there were two random pictures on our kitchen wall in the weirdest place one of them covering this hole, the other one there so people wouldn't think that I was just covering a hole. 
I was like, how you like that, honey? You know? She's like, oh my goodness, you know? But those are tough, tough things. Those can create issues because we have these expectations. Amy's expectations was that a husband does these things. But then there was reality. Because we all have these moments in marriage and relationships where expectation and reality don't meet. And there's this gap, this hole between those two things. We eventually will discover gaps in what we expect and what that other person brings to the table. And the question is, for you, in your relationships, in your marriage, what do you put in the gap? What do you fill that gap with? That gap between what you expect, what you want, what you desire, and what the other person brings or does or who they are. What do you put in that gap? Some of you fill that gap with nagging. Your strategy is if I nag hard enough, loud enough, often enough, I can eliminate this gap. Some of you fill the gap with just bitterness or anger or maybe even deep resentment that you won't even talk about. Some of you fill the gap by being passive aggressive. Well, I'll show her, you know, if, if she won't do what I want, then I'll just get quiet and be distant and emotionally take a step back from the relationship. I'll just punish her with my silence then. Or maybe your gap gets filled with lust or pornography or sexually explicit websites. And you justify this by dwelling on who she is and what she's not doing. But inside, you know that something's deeply wrong. Or maybe you escape into romance novels or fantasies about what it might be like to have a different spouse. Or you retreat after dinner, night after night after night into a hobby. Or you just sit in your chair and watch television instead of engaging or you try to numb the pain by drinking too much, or you immerse yourself in a combination of resentment and self-pity that goes on month after month, maybe even year after year. Friends, get honest with yourself today. What lies in the gap between your expectation and the reality of your relationship? What are you sticking in there? If you can't see it, if you don't know, ask your spouse, ask your friend, they know. Here's a powerful question. This is vulnerable. Where are there gaps in our relationship and what do we fill them with? Where are there gaps in our relationship and what do we fill them with? And here's what Paul says. Paul says, before you fill that gap with something else, remember there was also a pretty big gap between you and the Lord. There was a pretty big gap between who God created and expected you to be and who you actually are. And the God of the universe, he didn't come down and fill that gap with, with nagging or resentment or anger or bitterness or rage. No, he had compassion on you. And he filled that gap with amazing grace and tremendous forgiveness and acceptance that we can't even imagine. You see, friends, what God does for us in Christ is he actually empowers us to be the kind of people that he longs for us to be in relationship. My, my favorite verse, probably, when it comes to, to marriage and relationships, just a little verse in Ephesians chapter 5, the next chapter over, Ephesians 5.21, and in this verse it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there's a lot of debate because there's a whole section on like 
relationships in the church, and there's a whole section on like how we live in marriage, and this verse is kind of right between them, and people debate, like, is this verse for this or is this verse for this? And my, my answer is this verse is for both. <laughs> this is Paul saying, like, this is just a principle that can apply to any of your relationships, any of your most intimate and deep relationships in life. And what I love about this verse is, is it says, submit to one another, which really just means, hey, not my will, not my desires, not my agenda. I'm going to lay that down for our agenda, right? It's that whole, I'm going to trade in the me for the we. And, and really, honestly, if you read the scriptures, you can insert a lot of different words there biblically. Love one another out of reverence for Christ. Honor one another out of reverence. Respect one another out of reverence for Christ, right? All of those things kind of fall under the umbrella of submitting one to one another. But, but, the, but the, the crucial part of that verse is not the first phrase. It's the second phrase. Submit to another out of reverence for Christ. But that's not how most of us do marriage. Most of us do marriage this way. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for each other. I submit to you out of reverence for you. In other words, when I revere you and you're revereable, when I like you and you're doing what I want, when you deserve it, then I'll do it, right? So my behavior is based on your behavior. What I do is based on what you do. And if I like what you're doing, then I'll be great. And if I don't, well then, and what Jesus says is, that's not how Christian relationships work. Jesus says, I get right in the middle of Christian relationships. And here's, here's really what he's saying. He's saying, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand that I've saved you, that I've redeemed you, that I've restored you, that through my death and resurrection, I've offered you life, life everlasting, life filled with joy and peace and meaning and satisfaction and fullness till the end of time? Do you understand that I've saved you, that I've redeemed you? Do you understand the enormity of what I've done for you? And you say, oh, God, wow, you've done all that for me? What can I do in response? How can I respond to such amazing grace and tremendous love? And Jesus says, well, then you could just love her. In response to me, you could love her. And since my love never changes, you don't ever have to wonder if you should love her or not. You don't have to, you don't have to wonder if you should submit to her or not. You don't have to wonder if you should submit to him or not. Why? Because you're not doing it for him or for her. You're doing it for me. You're doing it for Jesus. Doesn't that make it so much easier? Because Jesus always deserves my best because he's always given me his best. See, that's what Paul and Bethany talked about a few weeks ago. That's the gospel of marriage. That's how the gospel fuels you to have the kind of marriage that God wants you to have, the kind of relationships that God longs for you to have. And that's what we do when we come to these tables on Sunday morning. We remember that truth. We remember how revereable Jesus is. We remember how much reverence he deserves. And we let this meal fuel our lives in real practical ways. You see, this isn't just a religious moment where we did this religious thing. This is us saying, oh yeah, the amazing grace and the tremendous love of God now fuels me to be the kind of person I need to be in my friendships and even in my marriage, even when it's hard, even when he's a dork. Right? You see... This is grace, but it's grace that fills our tank to live lives of grace. And so here's my offer to you this morning. In just a minute, we're going to come to these tables. We're going to take the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken in the cup, the blood of Christ that was shed, that we might be made right with God forever. But before you come to the table this morning, just stop for a minute and ask yourself this question. 
Lord, what did you want me to hear today? What did you want me to hear today? How do you want me to respond today? Is there, is there, any, is there an action item for me? Is there a step I need to take? Is there a question I need to ask? Do I need to go to my spouse and ask for forgiveness? Do I need to just sit and maybe be a little more honest or try and cultivate some honesty? What do I need to do in response to this message today? Because if you ask that question of God, I think he'll answer you. And then when you're ready, you come and you remember how much God loves you and all that he's done for you and that he'll never give up on you. Father, this morning we thank you for your son, for the way that you fuel us and empower us to be who you long for us to be, Lord, that you don't just leave us to our own strength and our efforts. I pray for marriages in this room that are struggling, that need just a dose of, of hope. I pray for, for relationships, Lord. Maybe there's a, a mother-daughter relationship in here today, or maybe there's a friendship that's on the ropes, Lord, and something from this passage just spoke in, God. I pray for a soft heart. Pray that you will continue to do what you do, and that's restore and redeem and give us energy to be the people you want us to be. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We pray it all in Christ's name.